Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop. Today's program is on preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. It's a very important topic, and it's one that I, I know many of you really want to hear much more about because it's the concept of preventing this, uh, this um, side effect, which is really um, so, uh, so advanced for m most of us to think about. It's such a wonderful progression in the treatment and dealing with cancer. This program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So we have over 659 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. And really, it's a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is supported by Helsin, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, we've offered this program once before, and we're delighted to be able to offer it again. It's just such an important topic. Um, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawa. Dr. Grawa is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Jacoby Medical Center, and Dr. Grawa is going to address why some chemotherapy agents cause nausea and vomiting, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and how healthcare teams approach prevention of nausea and vomiting. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Grawa. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, again, I'm Richard Grawa. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. And I have the pleasure of serving as the first speaker on this program when we'll deal with a very common concern for patients and families uh, who are getting anti-cancer therapy, and that is the prevention of nausea and vomiting. We have a terrific panel assembled today with leading and accomplished experts. My colleagues are highly regarded worldwide, not only for their knowledge and experience, but also for their skills in delivering excellent care. So I will review uh, the topics that uh, Carolyn brought up, maybe not in that order. And um, uh, the first one that I want to talk about is simply on communication. And I can think of several reasons why this is uh, so important, but a couple of major reasons to emphasize are we, these days we individualize care. And I hope that you'll see in my presentation and those of my colleagues why that is key. The short answer is so that your care can have as positive an effect as possible and will contribute to preserving and improving quality of life. And so by communicating, we can maximum benefit, uh, maximize benefit. Remarkable changes in cancer care, including new modalities of treatment and new ways to prevent side effects, have happened over the last few years. And it's fair to say that we're really in a, an evolutionary period of maximizing the benefit of these new treatments. Supportive care is at least as individualized and complicated as anti-cancer care. A relatively new term that you may hear is precision medicine. And while many definitions are possible, one that I think is quite a good one that comes from the National Institutes of Health states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account a person's individual variations in genes, environment, and lifestyle. And there are certainly some issues and problems that occur only in some issues, in some patients, in some individuals, and not in others. By communicating, we can all be aware of risks or lack of risks and understand what's the best remedy or prevention that can be applied. And there's also another new term called patient-reported outcomes, or PROs. This reflects that in many areas, only through patient and family input can we truly understand the issues and concerns and needs that should be addressed. Of course, in many instances, your doctor or nurse may raise the issue, but there's no need to stand on ceremony. It's fine to bring it up first. In fact, it's appreciated. There's really no area that uh, you can't go forward. And your treatment team often has men and women nurses, doctors, pharmacists, social workers. So 
there's a lot available for you there. And I know that uh, Rebecca Clark Snow in, in her presentation will further emphasize communication. Now, physicians, nurses, social workers, and pharmacists, among others in oncology, spend a great deal of time educating themselves about the best approaches to a variety of problems. So do, so do their professional organizations such as ASCO, ONS, MASK, Cancer Care, and many others. Many of these organizations convene panels of experts to review the most significant information on a variety of topics, and this includes the prevention of nausea and vomiting. The panels review the latest research and put that into context with all the known information on these key topics and, indeed, on nausea and vomiting. When taking the best quality evidence, when the process is done in, in the uh, best possible way, the panel writes and publishes rigorous guidelines. These guidelines are then available to your healthcare team so that the highest quality knowledge can be put into place for your care. So there is your healthcare team, and the team is bolstered by the guidelines published by expert panels. And so by working together, a whole lot can be accomplished. Patients and families have told us that control of nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy and radiotherapy is at or near the top of their concerns. This is why it's really worth our while discussing the issue. And again, not everyone is aware that so much progress has been made in recent years and that it's an area that we figure we feel that uh, further progress uh, will indeed occur. Vomiting, or emesis, the process of bringing up contents, or, and nausea, the feeling that you might have, have vomiting, can be a problem to address and prevent in all aspects of cancer care. With initial diagnosis, when one is getting surgery and anesthesia, treatment postoperatively with radiation therapy, chemotherapy, sometimes with other medicines that you might be taking. Um, so we'll focus on nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy in this program, but when we take questions, all areas are fair for discussion. Again, fortunately, a lot of progress has been achieved and my colleagues will go into a lot of detail on this. Most people are not aware that this progress has been made, and I wish that the news media, movies, televisions, magazines, newspapers would get it right. It's safe to say that the majority of people getting anti-cancer treatment today will not experience vomiting, although some will. So why can nausea and vomiting occur with chemotherapy? And it's because nausea and vomiting are normal protective responses. Foreign substances, which the body didn't evolve to sense that we would be taking them intravenously, but by mouth, are there. So the reaction is through the GI tract. Sensors or receptors in the gut and also in the brain, which monitor chemicals in the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid, not just the stomach, are all important. It's tricky, but it's an important protective reflex, and we want to Turn it off when we don't need it, as when we're getting chemotherapy. By knowing these key mechanisms that are involved, we're able to very selectively turn off this uh, sensation and be able to prevent nausea and vomiting by blocking just the receptors that are involved with this area. We learned several years ago that certain serotonin receptors are important in the process, both in the in the GI tract and in the brain. Today, we can block those serotonin receptors with what we call Cetron drugs, which when used properly are very helpful and have uh, few side effects for most people. And these, these are drugs that you may be familiar with, Palinocitron or Aloxy, Ondansetron, or, which is also called Zofran, and these are the most commonly used uh, of these drugs. We learned also that there's a pathway associated with a small natural protein transmitter called substance P that's also important, and especially in the brain. And this is often called the NK1 pathway. And we have new medicines for this. We have a combination medicine that combines this type of NK1 antagonist with palinocitron, which is called the Kinzio. And then we have the drug Amend, a prepotent, which is just a single drug, and doctors use a couple of drugs in this as well. And there's an older class of medicines that are related to cortisone, which are also called corticosteroids, and they can have an important role for many people too. 
So we learned that there are two clear needs preventing what is called acute emesis, the nausea or vomiting that occurs on the day of treatment, and the second is to get better results with delayed emesis, which actually can occur in the days following chemotherapy. It turns out that there are certain risk factors which differ among individuals and are valuable to know. The most important risk factor is the chemotherapy that you'll actually given, but, it, but also a person's gender. It's a little bit more difficult to prevent nausea and vomiting in women. Their age group, younger patients are more at risk than older patients, and there's some other ones as well. So based on these individual factors, your health care team can tailor your preventive measures for nausea and vomiting. Should a person get just one of these anti-nausea medicines or two or three? It depends on the factors that we've discussed, and that's part of individualizing care. The Cetrons and NK1 agents are very focused on those pathways, uh, but recently adding less focused medicines have been shown to have some benefit for some, and I know that Dr. Schwartzberg will be discussing some of these uh, as well. And there are oral medications including the use of a single pill given just once that can be useful for many individuals? Or should the medicines be given intravenously? How can these antimetic, anti-nausea medicines be given as effectively and convenient as possible? And that's what you and your health team should discuss. So all these topics, including more on communication and steps you should be aware of, will be addressed by my colleagues in the next few minutes. But I'd just like to give a few of my little pointers, which Carolyn often likes us to go in, remember, and here they are. First, remember that anti-nausea medicines are best given to prevent the problem rather than waiting for it to be occur. Be sure that you understand your doctor's and nurse's instructions for taking the medicines just right. Make sure that you have the proper medicines in a sufficient supply um, when you go home, which is terrific. And... Um, you know, make sure that you have the right phone numbers to call your nurse or doctor, social worker, whomever, to be there. Be sure that you're keeping up with fluids and ask your doctor or nurse about proper nutrition. And, you know, these days we see so many people with diabetes that if you do have diabetes, make sure you're particularly attentive to your blood sugar levels and that sort of thing, as well as keeping up on fluids and good nutrition. All of these your healthcare team will want to review. So those are my comments, and I'm going to be listening carefully to the presentations that come up uh, very soon. So thank you very much, and I'll turn the program back to uh, Carolyn Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was really outstanding, and and really, you really set the whole stage for the program today. And I want to just give a lot of credit to Dr. Grala because Dr. Grala really helped in planning today's program and really in identifying our best speakers. So I'm really grateful to him for doing that as well. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. And Dr. Schwartzberg is Executive Director, West Cancer Center, Chief Division of Hematology Oncology, Professor of Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And Dr. Schwartzberg is going to address current research directions to improve control of nausea and vomiting, new agents, and prevention strategies. And it's now my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you so much. And I uh, want to start by acknowledging uh, a wonderful introduction by Dr. Grala. And what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is to expand on some of the comments that he made. I want to focus first on the fact of prevention. What we're attempting to do here and what we can accomplish for the vast majority of patients who are receiving chemotherapy of any intensity is uh, to dramatically reduce the chance of developing nausea and particularly vomiting from chemotherapy. And prevention is the key, making sure that the correct formula for the anti-emesis or the anti-nausea drugs that are used before chemotherapy is developed with your healthcare team is a critical part of the shared decision-making that you undergo when you're making a decision about what type of treatment to uh, take for your cancer and what type of supportive care uh, you take for your cancer. Now, 
As Dr. Grala mentioned, um, we have guidelines that have been in place now through a variety of organizations based on the evidence that continues to accrue through clinical trials over years. And we now have effective drugs, as you've heard, for over 20 years, and we continue to add to the armamentarium that we have in order to make these drug combinations or single agents even better than they were. So the first point that the healthcare team considers when looking at prevention strategies is the risk from the chemotherapy drugs themselves. And it's typically divided into several different categories of risk, highly uh, nausea and vomiting provoking drugs, moderately uh, low and, mi and minimal. And there are drugs that have minimal toxicity in this regard that are very unlikely to cause nausea and vomiting, and typically we don't give any preventive strategies for those. Unfortunately, most of the chemotherapy drugs we use, particularly the intravenous drugs that we use, fall into the other categories. A few of them, and some of the ones that we use still very commonly in uh, diseases like lung cancer and head and neck cancer and breast cancer, are in that highly emetogenic range. When that occurs, we use the most intensive combination uh, in order to achieve as much prophylaxis or prevention that we can. Typically, that has been uh, a three-drug combination, which includes a Cetron, as you heard about, which blocks a serotonin receptor, uh, an NK1 antagonist, which blocks that substance P reaction, and usually a drug called decadron or dexamethasone, which is one of the forms of corticosteroids, which works against a variety of different receptors. We see better results with the combination of those uh, three classes of drugs in the highly emetogenic uh, chemotherapy agents. In addition, uh, some of the, some of the uh, chemotherapy agents that we use fall into the higher, moderately emetogenic chemotherapy range, in which case we often will use three drugs, depending in part on the patient risk factors that you heard about. So such things as, um, as uh, the age of the patient and um, the uh, sex of the patient, and then some other factors that we are historical uh, factors that we take into account. For example, women who have hyperemesis in pregnancy tend to be more at risk for nausea. We've learned about some other factors, alcohol use, less alcohol use tends to increase the risk and um, less sleep and anxiety also increase the risk. So we take all of these factors into account when creating the preventive strategy. There are a large number of new agents that have been developed over the last few years, which are very gratifying. So although we have had the basis for controlling nausea and vomiting now for a couple of decades, we continue to strive to get to the end result where no patient would have nausea and vomiting. And while we're not there yet, we are making good progress year by year. So first I want to talk about a couple of drugs that have been um, developed over the last few years, which are in the NK1 class. This is the most recent class of drugs that have been developed, and the first one was a prepotent or amend, which was developed about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. It's available in both an oral form and an IV form, as, by the way, the Cetrons are, are as well. So depending on the convenience and the way your chemotherapy is being delivered uh, and your preference with your healthcare team, one can ask for one or the other type of uh, delivery system, either oral or intravenous. Uh, uh, a prepotent adds to the addition of the Cetron and dexamethasone and reduces the risk for vomiting. Um, a little bit less good on nausea, but does improve uh, nausea as well. And that has become, as I said, a standard in uh, combination chemotherapy or single-agent chemotherapy where that risk is moderately high to high for developing uh, nausea and vomiting. The nice thing about the NK1 antagonists is they add very little of side effects of their own 
to the already relatively small side effect profile from the other drugs, the Cetrons and uh, the Dexamethasone. So it's important to recognize that you're not trading off one set of side effects for another. In fact, you're preventing one of the worst side effects, nausea and vomiting, with very little effect on the other side in terms of consequence from the, actual, from the drugs you're getting. In the last couple of years, there have been the development of new NK1 antagonists, and uh, two of those have come on the market. One of them is natupatent, which is a new long-acting NK1 antagonist, which is, has been developed in combination uh, with palinocitron, which is a very potent cetron, uh, the most potent cetron um, head-to-head against other uh, of those five HT3 or cetron antagonists. So the combination of natupatent and palinocitron is known as NEPA. It is currently available in the United States as uh, an oral formulation, one capsule, which uh, gives complete protection against nausea and vomiting over that period of risk that Dr. Grala talked about, which is, um, which is that first five days, the first day being the acute phase and the second four or five days being the delayed phase in which you might expect nausea and vomiting to occur from the chemotherapy. And so uh, a, sim- a simple capsule of NEPA plus uh, dexamethasone given orally will give uh, effective control for that five-day period. The other NK1 antagonist that has been uh, developed recently is relopatent, which is uh, also available as an oral pill. This has to be given in combination with a cetron, which can either be given intravenously or orally and the dexamethasone. Both of the new agents have long-acting control, and, uh, depend, and depending on the convenience of taking one capsule, which is very convenient, or uh, in combination, that can be discussed with your healthcare team. The most recent agent to have phase three data, which is highest level data that it works, is actually a very old um, uh, agent, which is called olanzapine. Lansipine is a very old drug that has been used in medicine for a variety of reasons, but it's interesting because it attacks several of the receptors that Dr. Grala mentioned, which are instrumental in that reflex to rid the body of toxins and to cause the vomiting reflex and uh, the sensation of nausea. Recently, olanzapine has been added as an oral therapy given on the day of chemotherapy and for uh, three days subsequently, in addition to a three-drug regimen, including a Cetron, a um, NK1 antagonist, and dexamethasone. And the effect of olanzapine, particularly for women who were taking combinations with adriamycin and cyclophosphamide, a highly emetogenic chemotherapy program that is used very commonly in breast cancer, was the four-drug regimen showed a significant and fairly dramatic improvement in nausea over the entire period of, uh, of study. And so for selected patients, particularly those getting highly emetogenic chemotherapy, we've now expanded based on that study and other studies to look at using a four-drug regimen as opposed to a three-drug regimen, again, with very little increased uh, toxicity with the exception of a bit of sedation, because one of the things that olanzapine can do is uh, sometimes cause some sleepiness, particularly on the first day that it's taken. Uh, in some, to some extent, dexamethasone or decadron counteracts that. So it's a question of the two drugs working together there. Given what we have now, the majority of patients with um, these agents, any one of these combinations, has effective control of vomiting in, uh, in the vast majority of patients. We still have some residual problem with nausea. Even in, after olanzapine, there is still a small segment of the population who are at highest risk to uh, have nausea, and that remains an area of, uh, of active clinical trials, and uh, Rebecca Clark-Snow will talk about that next. So I, well, I think... I will stop there and uh, hand uh, the phone uh, to Ms. Clark Snow. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Schwarzberg. That was excellent. And really, um, now everyone kind of knows much more about the 
these various treatments and how they work and um, the benefits. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Rebecca Clark Snow. Um, Rebecca is an oncology nurse. She's oncology clinical nurse coordinator, the University of Kansas uh, Cancer Center. And Ms. Clark Snow is going to address the role of the oncology nurse in preventing side effects and the importance of clinical trials. It's my real, real pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Clark Snow. Well, thank you, and it is a pleasure to be here this afternoon to speak to you all uh, about uh, oncology nursing and how uh, we can impact the care of patients and help uh, family members and, and significant others and caregivers um, help patients through this difficult time in their lives. Um, I would like you to know that, that oncology nurses are really at the foremost uh, uh, point of, of patient navigation, and we, we really are symptom managers. Uh, we play a multifaceted role, um, and I'd also like you to know that effective management of any given symptom or a group of symptoms really has to consider multiple dimensions of, of the symptom experience, uh, including different management strategies and outcomes, outcomes including communication which both Dr. Grala and Dr. Schwartzberg discussed. Uh, communication is really one of the key things that nurses do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. We discuss things with staff members, with uh, physicians. It's truly a multidisciplinary effort, ultimately to make sure that our patients receive the best care possible. Um, the other really important aspect that uh, we do uh, as far as teaching goes is letting our patients know exactly what to expect before treatment, during treatment, and after treatment. Um, and really the best time to do that is with the very first cycle of treatment. Um, I'd like to sit down with the patients and, and have a really good conversation about what their expectations are um, and to go through not only the side effects of the different chemotherapy drugs, but also how we can prevent side effects, um, not just chemotherapy, nausea, and vomiting, but some of the other important side effects that many of our patients experience as well. So I think an important thing to mention is some of the clinical challenges and patient expectations uh, that we uh, encounter um, on a daily basis. It's important to dispel misconceptions that our patients have, and I see this as an opportunity to really provide our patients with all of the information that they need going forward. Um, patient perceptions may impact the control of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Some of our patients may expect to suffer during chemotherapy and may not want to complain about it. For some, nausea and vomiting may indicate that the treatment is not working. Others may fear that complaining about CIND will result in a dose reduction or discontinuation of chemotherapy. So once again, this is a perfect opportunity for nurses and, and nurse practitioners to really um, have a heart-to-heart -heart with patients and family members and, and just dispel some of these rumors and give them the important facts that they will need to have really good outcomes. Um, so once again, our physicians today, Dr. Schwartzberg and Dr. Gerala, talked about some of the risk factors that uh, are important in determining how we're going to treat our patients. Um, in taking a good history, it's important to identify those risk factors. Uh, once again, whether patients have had an experience in the past with a prior course of chemotherapy and how well they did with it. Um, also taking into to account their age and whether they're female or not. And once again, just to make, it, make sure that we really all understand that the most important factor in determining which antiemetic regimen is used is determining the uh, risk factor or how metagenic that particular chemotherapy agent or regimen is. So 
aside from educating patients and caregivers on the importance of, of chemotherapy-induced prophylaxis, uh, we also talk about the risk of delayed and anticipatory chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Uh, we discuss recommended evidence-based antibiotic regimens with physicians, with pharmacists, and with other nurse colleagues. Um, written and oral communication is really key as well uh, in order to ensure that essential information is understood. When discussing this important information with patients, it's really important to consider each individual's education and language barriers because so many of our patients um, come to us from different countries and they have difficulty understanding the information uh, that's very often only in, uh, written in English. The other important thing is we need to provide adequate time during clinic visits to review treatment-related side effects and treatment plans. Uh, for the typical patient uh, and the a typical nursing day, that can be difficult to do. So fortunately, we, there are several things that we can do. Number one is to provide written information. The other is to reinforce that information every time patients return to the clinic. The other is to provide follow-up. And by that, once patients have left the clinic, to make sure that we keep in touch with them to make sure those lines of communication are kept open after they've left the clinic, that they truly do understand what the regimen is that they are to take, and to make sure that they're compliant, that they understand that it's really important to take that medicine as it has been prescribed. Um, I think, once again, as our physicians uh, have indicated, that CIV can be prevented in most patients with the use of guideline-recommended antibiotic regimens. We do know, however, that adherence to these guidelines is an issue for uh, many institutions in the United States and abroad. So oncology nurses, as part of a multidisciplinary team, are in a unique position to promote and reinforce appropriate antibiotic prophylaxis. Uh, and by doing that, we become aware of antibiotic guidelines and everything that goes involved, that's involved rather with making sure that patients uh, are receiving the best antibiotic care possible. So how do we do that? Uh, there are specific staff tools uh, that have been developed or that can be developed that makes this task easier. Uh, having standing orders, making sure that uh, chemotherapy regimens include very specific antiemetic regimens uh, within that order. Um, discussing those regimens, making sure that everyone on that multidisciplinary team is aware and updating those regimens when necessary. There are also specific patient-related tools that we can give to our patients and discuss with them to make it easier to use the right regimen. We can provide our patients with individualized delayed emphasis schedules, uh, providing them with relevant information sheets, uh, making sure that patients have access to diaries and calendars where they can note uh, how their experience has been uh, during that treatment period. One very specific and, and important and useful tool that has been, been developed and has been used uh, for several years is called the MASK anti-emphasis tool that was developed by the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer. Uh, it is found on the MASC website, uh, which is www.masc.org. Uh, and what this tool does is provides patients with uh, an information sheet to take home. It describes what nausea and vomiting is. It gives patients an opportunity to keep track of how well they do during that initial 24 hours, as well as the subsequent uh, period, that delayed phase, which is usually about four days later. 
this information is then shared with nursing, the other nursing and uh, medical staff to assure that patients are having the best outcomes possible and if we need to make changes to antibiotic regimens. Um, and so patients can either bring this back to their next visit or we can discuss it with them over the phone. There are special apps that are available for patients on their smartphones where this information can be relayed to uh, healthcare professionals in real time so that we know really at a moment's notice how patients are doing. So I think to conclude for this part of my talk, we know that uh, prophylaxis for prevention of CIV should be selected on individual patient conditions. Uh, adherence to guideline recommendations significantly reduces CIV in, uh, incidence, and that oncology nurses are critical for the optimal prevention and treatment of CIV. We play a key role in helping patients adhere to chemotherapy and antibiotic regimens and schedules, and we assist physicians and other members of our multidisciplinary care teams with the daily application of evidence-based guidelines that positively affect adherence among the medical community. And once again, keeping lines of communication open uh, with patients and caregivers and anyone involved in the care of our patients. I'd like to now just switch gears and talk a little bit about clinical trials. Um, it is with clinical trials that all of our currently available antiemetics have become available. Um, researchers over the past three decades, if not longer, um, have used clinical trials to identify and develop and ultimately have these medications approved for use by everyone here in the States and, and globally. We know that clinical trials are how we make progress in preventing and treating cancer and that clinical trials must be done before new drugs are approved by the FDA. Um, clinical trials offer patients hope. Unfortunately, there a disproportionate number of patients are actually enrolled in clinical trials, and I believe that number is about less than 5% of adults. Um, however, for our pediatric population, many of those patients, almost 60% of children with cancer, get treatment through a clinical trial. And whenever possible, physicians will offer patients participation in a clinical trial if it is appropriate. There are several phases of clinical trials, which I'm not going to go into now. Uh, there are specific requirements that must be met, which are called inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, there's also a very specific informed consent that patients must agree to before they can participate. The other important thing that we tell patients who are uh, participating in clinical trials is it is always their option to withdraw consent at any time for whatever reason, and that decision is honored by the physician or principal investigator on that trial. Um, clinical trials are sponsored by various organizations. There are government agencies, uh, such as the National Cancer Institute, uh, pharmaceutical companies sponsor clinical trials, and individual physicians have uh, what are called physician-initiated clinical trials within specific institutions, uh, which also are available to patients. Um, I'd also like to tell you about a, an important website that uh, has been developed for patients where they can go and access information about clinical trials uh, and other important information, and that is cancer.net. Uh, which is sponsored by the American Society of Clinical Oncology. So I would urge anyone to really go to that website to find very specific information about clinical trial listings, uh, what clinical trials are available, uh, and also if, if there is a specific clinical trial that you're interested in, you can look at that and take it, that information back to your specific physician 
who will then just sit down and discuss that with you. Um, so briefly, uh, I think that really is what I wanted to say about clinical trials. I could really talk about that for quite a while longer, um, but I'm going to turn that over now to our next speaker. Oh, thank you so much. That was really wonderful and very, very comprehensive and informative, uh, Ms. Clarkson. That was really excellent. Uh, lots of wonderful information and also um, information about some uh, websites which we have actually made available to those of you who are online and actually will be sent out to all of you in your informational packet. So any information that we get, any kind of websites or telephone numbers that we give out during the call, you will all be getting it um, as um, either in your electronic evaluation packet that you get or as um, a paper packet, you'll get that information as well. Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs, as well as the role of support groups. And Ms. Edlin actually um, really oversees about over 100, I believe it's 140 online support groups that we now currently have at Cancer Care available. So I'm going to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online support groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. We have actually a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board. I know some of you are already queuing up. Some of you know how to pose your questions. So I'm going to ask Ayala to tell everybody how to ask their questions. And we'll try to take as many as possible. If we don't get your question at the end of the call, I'll give you resources to get your questions answered. Um, but why don't we take as many as we can now, Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, if you have a question, please press star, then 1. There's a question in front of our online participants, um, and I'm going to direct that question. I'm going to start with um, Dr. Grawa. Um, so what are common side effects of anti-nausea, anti-CIMV drugs? Uh, Dr. Grawler, if you could address that. Superb or start question. With that Superb question. Because, you know, in supportive care, we want um, these medicines to be highly effective, but we surely don't want to have to deal with a lot of side effects. 
So the cetrons as a class, and again, palinocitron uh, um, or ondansetron um, or granisetron are the most commonly used of these drugs. Their most common side effects are headache, usually quite mild, or constipation. And one should understand that. So simple drugs like Tylenol, acetaminophen, can really address that headache should it occur. And it occurs in up to 20 or 30% of patients, sometimes less, but in that range. So one should have no hesitation to take a little bit of Tylenol or if you have another uh, um, simple drug that you're taking uh, if you have a headache. If it wasn't due to the uh, anti-nausea medicine, it's really not a problem, but go ahead and, and do that. The other thing is constipation, and these drugs can cause constipation. Now, some chemotherapy causes diarrhea, so I always ask my patients to wait about a day to make sure that they didn't have some diarrhea occurring, but otherwise simple laxatives, whatever laxative you might use, I like milk of magnesia, Senecot, uh, these sorts of things should be taken if there is some uh, some constipation. And then for the NK1 receptor antagonists, it's very interesting. It's not clear that they actually have real side effects. Um, some studies have shown that especially in men taking the NK1 receptor antagonists, there can be more hiccups um, in a small percentage. It doesn't seem to occur so much in women, but it does occur in men. And so the one should be aware of that. But otherwise, these are very low in side effects. Now, Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned that with olanzapine, you do have some additional side effects, especially sedation, which can be um, uh, quite real in uh, a minority of patients, and one should be aware of that, especially if you're going... Uh, uh, to the uh, treatment center and need to, uh, you know, have a ride home and that kind of thing. So I would say those are the major side effects other than the cortisone-like medicines, which do have a variety of side effects, which can include difficulty in sleeping, raising of blood sugar, and sometimes uh, uh, acid indigestion, quite uh, such issues. So I, I'll okay. conclude with that. Okay, excellent. Does anyone want to add to that, or that's probably comprehensive? Okay, that sounds like it's totally comprehensive. Thank you, Dr. Growler. Excellent. Um, and there's another question from our online participants, and Dr. Schwartzberg, I'm going to give that question to you. Are there particular treatments or cancer types that cause more nausea and vomiting than others? That's another great question. We typically don't distinguish the cancer type. The, the major impact of cancer-induced uh, and chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting is, in fact, the chemotherapy rather than the cancer. But occasionally, there are some cancers that would be more likely to contribute to nausea and vomiting. And one of the things that is important for both patients and healthcare providers to keep in mind is that not all nausea and vomiting occurs because of chemotherapy, particularly when it's extended and goes beyond the first few days after a chemotherapy treatment. There are other factors that cause uh, nausea and vomiting, and those may be specific to particular diseases. For example, diseases that occur predominantly in the abdomen that might impact the natural motility or the movement of the gastrointestinal tract. If uh, a patient had a disease in that area, it's maybe more common for them to develop nausea and vomiting because their intestinal tract is not acting normally. Um, there are patients who have uh, problems with their kidneys, either as a result of their cancer or their treatment, uh, or if uh, in the loss of, of kidney function for whatever reason, sometimes the development of uh, kidney dysfunction will cause nausea. It's a common side effect. Occasionally, patients who are living with advanced cancer and have, for example, tumors into their brain uh, can get uh, nausea and vomiting as well. So the key message there is to keep in mind that it, generally with chemotherapy, it's the, uh, the intensity of the chemotherapy and the baseline intrinsic uh, metagenicity of the chemotherapy agents or combinations that are used. But patient factors and disease factors clearly play a role, and they all need to be considered when you're dealing with the possibility of nausea and vomiting in a cancer patient. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that or anyone? 
excellent uh, team here. Um, so, um, and then I have a question for Ms. Um, Clark Snow. Um, I've been advised to increase my liquid intake to deal with CINV, but because it's difficult for me to get up to go to the bathroom, I'm hesitant to drink more water, juice. Are there any other options for me? How else can I stay better hydrated? And again, if you could answer this in just in a general way, um, there may be others who have similar questions yeah. or concerns about liquid intake. Yes, thank you. So another really wonderful question. I mean, it's it's very difficult to, to ask our patients to increase their fluid intake, especially when they're not feeling well and if they're experiencing nausea. So, of course, we always tell patients to have a little glass of something sitting by, nearby to sip on. Uh, the other uh, things that they can do is to uh, have, like, ice pops, which is considered a liquid but just frozen, uh, and which may be uh, soothing and, and comforting. Um, you can ask patients to, um, um, you know, not just drinking water, but soups and things like that provide fluids as well. Um, you know, it's 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 a really sort of vicious cycle um, to, uh, and I know caregivers want to make sure that patients are are not only eating but but hydrating well. So. My best advice is, is for patients to do the best that they can and to, to take the medications as, as, as recommended uh, and to, to drink, you know, throughout the day whenever you can, um, which is, is easier said than done. But um, to, to get something in so that you can avoid coming back into the clinic or hospital for additional IV fluids. Um, can I comment on that yeah. also yeah. just to, yeah. to add a little? Uh, uh, I think uh, such an important message that Rebecca gave there is to sort of be continuously as well hydrated as possible rather than to say that, oh, my goodness, I've fallen behind and then have to drink an awful lot. It's it's not only more difficult, but uh, also probably leads to the problem that the that the caller brought up, which is this fact of having to urinate more frequently than one might like, which can be can be difficult. So I think that's one approach. But the other is you really do need to stay hydrated. And so at times, um, and, you know, especially as men get older, but the problem can be there for women as well, uh, there is the frequency in urination, and uh, which can occur in for a variety of reasons. So having one of those little plastic urinals around, if if that can be okay, and uh, all the rest sort of adapted to that to make things easier, not having to get up as much at night or even a bedside commode or something like that to make it a little bit easier. It's not certainly pleasant, but being decently hydrated can pay a lot of dividends, and just the opposite is true, being dehydrated not so great. So mm -hmm. I certainly agree with everything that Rebecca said. Just want to emphasize uh, her point of uh, of being pretty constant with it rather than having to play catch-up. Excellent. Thank you. This is a great, what a wonderful team we have here. And you all have them in your pocket now. Just remember that they're all there for you. Um, you can also, I should just remind all of you that you can listen to the program, you know, after it's over. Uh, you can listen to it on telephone replay or as a podcast. And you can also access it throughout the year whenever, actually probably longer than that, um, as you need information as you're um, experiencing different issues. And that's 24 hours a day, so just remember that. Um, so we have another question. I'm going to give this question um, to Dr. Grollo. Um, this may be our very last late-breaking question. I am just starting treatment and have had slight nausea. A family friend suggested I stay sitting up, head elevated, after eating instead of lying down. Is this true? So Dr. Grollo, if you could address this, this probably comes up a lot for people. So, you know, nausea is actually more common of a problem than, than vomiting, and uh, everybody has their own little tricks that can be helpful. And uh, I would say certainly that making sure your food is digested uh, uh, makes sense. Uh, part of the one of the first things that happens when we get nauseated is our stomachs don't empty food as avidly as quickly as they ought to. So I think, you know, uh, being a little upright for a while after a meal 
does make some sort of sense as such. But you'll have to find what's, uh, what works for you as an individual. And, of course, this doesn't mean staying upright for a long period of time, but just to make sure that the food is there. You'll have to find the foods that you find are most compatible for you. Many people say avoid things like uh, fatty foods and fried foods and spicy foods, but I think you have to find what works well for you. And, uh, you know, I think that eating modestly or moderately and good nutritional aspects, waiting for half an hour to an hour after a meal, it's probably practical. And I think you'll find uh, what works best for you. And if you've had delayed nausea medicines, as Dr. Schwartzberg described, uh, have been prescribed for you, making sure you take them just right. Excellent. Well, I want to uh, I might add one, been, just yeah, one okay, thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yes, just okay. one thing to add uh, to that to that thorough description is many people with uh, cancer chemotherapy also have exacerbation of GERD, and that's a common symptom, so reflux symptoms. And if uh, that may have been what your friend was talking about. If you have a tendency to have uh, gastritis and to have reflux symptoms, chemotherapy can exacerbate that. And one of the drugs that we recommend as an adjunct in women and men who have that is for is to take a uh, antacid or proton pump inhibitor or uh, an ant, uh, one of the drugs that inhibit the stomach acid. So those may also be an adjunctive help if you have that kind of symptom in addition to uh, sitting upright after meals if that's the symptom you have. That's an excellent point. That's that's very important. That's that's an increasing... And someone understand what GERD is, if you would just kind of explain that to everyone because I think people... So many people hear the word but may not understand what it means. Right. So it means, uh, it actually stands for uh, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or dysfunction. And basically what it means is that your stomach contents sometimes come up into your esophagus and it may be associated with a burning sensation or heartburn is the typical way it's described. But as Dr. Grala said, nausea is a subjective symptom and nausea can be called, caused as a, uh, as a reflex prior to vomiting, but uh, sometimes the inability to taste correctly or your stomach is not moving, as he mentioned, um, correctly and uh, you're not emptying correctly. All of those can be interpreted by individuals as nausea. So can dyspepsia or gastritis or heartburn. And so if you have that kind of symptom, uh, controlling that is very, very possible with the right medicine. And just to... Further add to that, uh, so one of our first questions dealt with side effects of these medicines, and uh, um, indeed the cortisone-like medicines, which we frequently use here, that kind of uh, acid indigestion, GERD, et cetera, all can be a little worse. And uh, then just to tie that up with what each of the speakers mentioned, good communication. If you have any of these issues, please don't be bashful to uh, ask you, uh, somebody on your treatment team because it may be something really straightforward, just as, as Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned, by taking a simple pill. And uh, to, to get that straight from your team uh, uh, is, is just what uh, we would like to be sure is happening. Well, thank you so much. And this is a really important message for everyone to hear sort of as, we conclude the, as we conclude the call, that really your healthcare team is a wonderful resource and you don't have to wait for the next appointment. You can call their office um, as, you, as you have questions arise. And you also hear that in many offices, oncology nurses are there, staffing, taking a lot of these calls, helping. So you're, you've got a lot of information today that I hope you'll use um, as you um, go forward um, um, and we hope that this call will help some of you to really maximize your use or take more advantage of the fact that we can now prevent nausea and vomiting in most instances, and that's really important. And so as we conclude the call today, I had said that in case you do have questions, and I know there are questions that we have not gotten to, um, if you have any medical questions, um, please contact um, the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237, or for those of you both in this country or internationally who prefer to use the, their website, it's www.cancer.gov. They have a lovely feature of a live chat in which you can post your question on their website on the live chat 
section, and it's right there on the homepage. And you can actually post your question, and one of the information specialists will then address your question. And you can have a back and forth discussion with them online. It's very helpful to people, a very quick way of getting information, and very credible information. We, of course, also suggest that you talk to your healthcare team, but we do know that some of you like to do, in addition to talking to your healthcare team, you like to check things out beforehand, perhaps to seem more knowledgeable, to know more, to, to frame your questions better. So this is a very nice resource. Also, um, today you were given the resource of MASK. Um, there's a wonderful tool there, which you'll all be getting um, as in your handout materials after the call. So that's another wonderful resource to utilize. And for those of you who actually would like to take advantage of some of the services of Cancer Care, then you would simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 to talk with one of our oncology social workers about getting practical and financial assistance with some of your concerns that you may have, or counseling services, a chance to talk with one of our trained oncology social workers, or joining one of our support groups, both the telephone or online support groups. And um, again, you can call us at 1-800-813-4673, or you can, again, go to our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can post your question there. One of our oncology social workers will then get back to you, and you can have an online discussion about your concerns in terms of any help that we can provide to you as well. And that applies to people both in the United States and nationally, internationally as well. So as we conclude the program today, I think it's been said before by Caroline, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support. We're all here to help you, starting with your healthcare team, of course. They're right there um, for you. And, of course, all of these other resources, Cancer Care being one of them. And there are listed all of the other organizations also that can be very helpful to you um, as you move forward in in coping with um, your coping with your cancer, with your treatment, um, and getting on with your life to some extent, all of these programs are intended for that. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a good day.